Hello everyone, welcome to Independent Animation, brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine, a series that focuses on, as the title suggests, indie animation artists and the work they create in an ever-shifting filmmaking landscape. I'm Ben Mitchell, Squiggly Managing Director and author of the Squiggly tie-in book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing and Distributing Your Animated Films, which this podcast ultimately serves as a companion series to, building on concepts, practices and case studies explored in the book. The series will see me following up on the work of some of the artists featured in it, as well as meeting a number of others. In fact, this episode will be doing both! Now, for a full introduction to the book, and by extension this series, you might want to check out episode 1 of Independent Animation, which is essentially just me reading the introduction. Now that some months have passed since the book was released, I'm kicking off the series proper, beginning with a look at the Late Night Work Club, a rotating collective of indie animators who last year joined forces for a second time to produce their own animation anthology, Strangers, following 2013's debut collection, Ghost Stories. Shortly after Strangers debuted, I was able to speak with participating artists Charles Hurtner, Sean Buckaloo, Alex Grigg, Jeanette Bonds, Loop Blaster, Nicholas Maynard, and Kirsten Lepore, about their experiences on the project and how they marshaled the resources to get their films done alongside their regular work. The collective originally began several years ago with a core group of filmmakers Scott Benson, Iman McNamara, Eamon O'Neill, Charles Hurtner, and Sean Buckaloo reaching out to other notable talents of the independent scene during after-hours discussions over social media. While Scott essentially led the charge for the coming together of Ghost Stories, which would also feature work by Alex Grigg, Dave Prosser, Jake Armstrong, Aaron Kilkenny, Daniela Orsini, Joe Orton, Kristen Buck, Louise Bagnall, and Connor Finnegan, for the overall organization of the second anthology, Charles Hurtner would take the reins. Late Night Work Club was started by me, Scott, Eamon O'Neill, and Evan McNamara. We were just like talking on Google Hangouts or whatever about freelancing and frustrations of stuff with that and Scott just sort of pitched to us this idea of doing late night work club and we were really into it and it just kind of blew up from there right after ghost stories he got into making video games and he's been making his game night in the woods ever since I had met Scott in real life in New York City along with um you know Sean and Caleb and Jake and you know we've all been friends since you know we talk a lot and it's great Of the artists who contributed work to Ghost Stories, it was Sean, Charles, Alex, Greg, and Caleb Wood who would return for Strangers. Caleb's entry, Anonmation, making use of the Strangers theme in one of the more literal ways, inviting actual strangers to collaborate on an abstract Annie Jam piece, making use of the online drawing app come chat room Doodle 2. Although originally planning on making his own full film for the collection, Charles Etner instead would opt to create a series of interstitial animations that would link each of the films, giving the anthology a certain branding and cohesion that proved rather effective. My Strangers film is something kind of different, but also sort of similar. Uh, It's probably going to be the most ambitious thing I ever do, which is kind of why I didn't have any time to do it for Strangers, because I was also working on this other big job, and... It just kind of had the sense of, like, I didn't want to do something small. I either wanted to do something, like, really special or or just not do anything at all, I guess. And since I just didn't have the time to do the big special thing, I just put all my focus on the intro and the middle stuff. The overall impression a collective such as Late Night Work Club gives off is that it's the artist's passion and the community support that drives it. And as artists, there's a sense of mutual understanding when it comes to not being able to devote as much time to personal projects as one might like. Sean Buckaloo's attitude is shared by the rest of the group in that there's no ill will toward those who, for whatever reason, couldn't remain involved with strangers. For some reason it felt like, oh yeah, it's the same old gang, but actually the people who finished, a lot of them were new members, which maybe that's telling. This is also the weird part of Late Night Work Club is like, you can't really hold anyone like to the flame with regard, you know, that it's right. like there's so many life things that can get in the way. It feels like even a miracle that seven films got made or like if one thing had gone differently, like I wouldn't have been able to make my film or whatever. I think that's true for everyone. And it happened on the first one that there were more people involved at first and then it got whittled down a little bit as like, okay, who's actually going to finish and yada, yada. Yeah, there's never any hard feelings or like, 
you know, animosity or whatever to anyone you can't finish. You know, there's no budget. We don't have money on the line with this. So you have to be really flexible with people's time and desires. And if they can't do something, then you just have to accept that and say, okay, you know, like maybe next time, you know, we're still cool. Stuff like that. When it comes to sort of like having new members in after the first batch, is there a kind of criteria or is it just people that you meet in real life or on social media? Like, or did anyone sort of come directly to you after seeing the first one and say, oh, I'd love to be involved in the next one? Uh, yeah, like a mixture of all of that. Uh, I think it was like someone like Nicholas. It just like made sense, you know, oh, yeah. like we had we had all kind of gotten to know him to some degree. And, you know, he was making films on his own. So it was just like it just made sense. And when we did the original Late Night Work Club and Friends screening for the first yes. one, it was like we always included Nicholas's film just because it felt like thematically so close or i don't know just like it's part of the same community so it's like it can just stand side by side with the first anthology so well that it's like oh yeah it's pretty straightforward logically that that would fit in the second one with loop i think she had just um done a lot of work over you know in between the first one and before we started up the second one and it just looked so appealing and i really wanted to bring her into that and then yeah. the rest, anyone who like didn't finish that was kind of new in the first trailer was just another situation of just like, hey, we really like your work, or like, you know, we had become friends, but at this point, and we're like, hey, do you want to, you know, be in on this? And just very casual, kind of went from there. Alex Gregg's previous late night work club film had been the ghost stories entry Phantom Limb, a project discussed at some length in the independent animation book is one of several films that would prove to have a tremendously successful and accoladed festival life in its own right. Although certainly embracing animation as a limitless means of communication, at Phantom Limb's heart is a touching and accessible narrative about a young man wrestling with anxieties about a car accident that costs his partner her arm. I know for me, like, I'd never made a film before, and I'd, like, I didn't even know why people were asking me to be part of it, and it was like, all I all I saw is like this big list of like people I like love and admired from the internet, and felt this overwhelming like terror <laughs> that I'd have, to put my work, that I'd have to like put my work next to theirs, and it was like just the sort of like pressure that um, I think I needed in order to like actually deal with this anxiety that I was feeling about not ever having made a film or not ever making like a a decent personal project that I could really stand behind. So I think it created this, this situation that was extremely positive for me personally. And then on top of that, like it did feel like, you know, there was this momentum behind it that, um, everyone was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like put all these people together and see what happens. So there was definitely that idea that other people were taking notice and you were going to have a, an audience just because like there was all these well-established indie animators alongside. So it had the exact effect that it, it kind of like needed for me personally. The big thing for me and Scott specifically, because uh, we both live in the United States and we live in Pennsylvania, which is kind of Uh, far away from any kind of central hub of animation activity or festivals or anything like that. Uh, So at the time, we had felt kind of cut off from the rest of the animation world and community. Uh, So doing a sort of uh, group anthology thing and being able to present it to the world online for free, you know, anyone can see this, uh, was a huge deal. And we were very... It's like... Like I said, we just kind of felt like we were waiting for this to happen. Like we and no one was doing it, so we, you know, we all decided let's do this ourselves because why not? We can. No one's gonna stop us, you know. For me, there was a sense of, like, I, I had a similar experience to Alex looking at this list of animators who were involved. Where I was like, oh, fuck. these are like, yeah, basically everyone who I'm a fan of, and I'm a total nobody. So there was for me a sense of like, I don't want Alex who's really great waiting on me to finish my movie to put it out there. So I felt like an extra sense of urgency of like, there was an imperative to finish that went beyond just your own sense of feeling shit about yourself um, or personal <laughs> guilt of like, not only would I let myself down, I'd be letting all these people down who are kind of counting on me finishing too, because this project only has value kind of if everyone like leans into it. It seemed like in the first one, everyone kind of, I think also cause we didn't know each other super well. It was like, 
we were all kind of operating in like relative isolation on the first one. At least within the group, I felt like I wasn't chummy with as many people yet. So it was like I didn't have a sense of where everyone else was at. So I was kind of on my own, which was like maybe kind of a blessing just because it like made me work hard because I was afraid that everyone else was finishing like these masterpieces and everyone was going to like laugh at me and then my pants would fall down and blow away and, you know, <laughs> my parents would be there, everyone's pointing. <laughs> Alex's Stranger's contribution, titled Born in a Void, is a more distinctly abstract piece, although it shares the high quality of animation and muted yet distinct use of colour as evidenced in his prior work. It features a score by London-based composer team Skillbard, who also provide the musical accompaniment to the film's animation and Sean Buckaloo's film Love Streams. Born in a Void first started to come together during a residency Alex was taking in Japan, during the initial stages of which he found it was important to not end up simply repeating himself. I started the film when I was at my residency in Tokyo uh, at the start of 2015. And uh, I pitched them a different film when I went there. Um, and that film felt very similar, I guess, to Phantom Limb. And I didn't have a long time to develop the idea before I pitched it to them and then I went over there and I had this like 10 week period to work on the film and I felt like this huge opportunity and like I was super honored to be there and then I was like working on this film that I began to realize that I wasn't that connected to and I was also like it was just so similar in like narrative and execution to Phantom Limb. And then towards the end of the residency, I think I was getting more and more anxious about working on this thing that like looks so similar to Phantom Limb. And I was doing these experiments at nighttime, just like in style and execution and just kind of trying to use my time to stay loose, I guess. And I came up with some style frames or just like just some drawings that I was like really into the style of and the colors and the shapes and everything. And so the night that I did the first one, I had been made about 15 color storyboards of that and it felt really good to execute and it suggested a story and it suggested an execution that was like really really different to Phantom Limb and that felt a lot more interesting to me than sort of repeating myself so yeah so just on a personal level I thought it would be good to to do something that was completely different because I think when I set out, I'd set out not to storyboard too much of it out and sort of like feel my way through it. Um, that changed the longer I worked on it. It just became harder and harder to sort of to work like that. I just couldn't. My brain couldn't process all the things at the same time. But, you know, at the, at the beginning, it started out very free-flowing. And that probably comes across in the film as well. Because I think it starts off with one tone and then and then ends with a very, very different tone. But And then also, like, the Genesis point was very much, like, me being alone in Japan in this strange world, making things, realizing how much I enjoyed the solitude, but then also, like, how important human connection was at the same time. There was this kind of paradox there that I couldn't quite resolve. And I think that that, like, thematically is the was a starting point for the film as well. And that, so those, all those things came at the same time in like a, a hotel room in Tokyo in 2015. Did the approach to the production change? Because I remember like with Phantom Limb, there was quite a lot of discipline to that in the sense of you kind of crewed up almost or like took time off specifically to do it. I think that I've just like, I've just learned that with a project as big as a film, like I can't, split my brain like I need to work on it in solid chunks so I when I was working like on paid stuff like there was just no way for me to I don't know like come home at nighttime and then think deeply about a film and then forget everything the next day and then start from scratch at nighttime again so I did split off like big chunks of time especially like the last few months to get it all done and as far as like disciplined approach I was really like adamant that I wanted to start the story at the start and just like solve it until I got to the end this time whereas typically I might storyboard sections and then slowly piece it out in a random fashion but this one I really wanted to start at the start 
I did end up doing like an animatic in the end, just so that I could um, just like satisfy myself that I wasn't wasting loads of time animating a shot that wouldn't be in the final product. But yeah, so it was a bit. It was a bit of a, a gray area between being totally freeform and planned out and stuff. Sean Buckaloo's film Love Streams also makes a point of embracing a different approach to his ghost stories short The American Dream, a traditionally hand-drawn black-and-white micro-tragedy animated in a POV style with pencils on paper. Love Streams, by comparison, is more of a modern-day love story tinged with pathos in which two chatroom companions who've not yet met conjure up a fantasy scenario in which they're able to do so. Bookending this imagined encounter are real-world sequences that aptly convey the heady mix of emotion, stiltedness, and anticipation of online messaging in its infancy. It pretty much is like a like verbatim facsimile of at least not necessarily my conversational experience, but like my interface experience. That it was like basically AOL Instant Messenger, which I guess in the UK it's people used ICQ or MSN, but. The principles are probably the same. But for me, I, I mean, it's almost like I feel like I kind of lack an imagination in certain ways. And so it's like having this historical thing that like you can just perfectly recreate. But then it's one of those things where within that, the two things that were interesting, I thought, is that you can see one side, type something out, but not send it. Or you can see like, what's the character of the way that they type it? You know, like if they type really fast, it's got this like exciting feeling. And then on the other end, the thing with your friend is typing, like, I didn't even think that was just sort of an afterthought of like, oh, yeah, that thing appears that your friend is typing thing. But then it's like, oh, that becomes such like an expressive tool if you're trying to give this like rhythm or emotion that like, okay, there's this long pause and he keeps typing and, you know, okay, what's he going to say? You know, it's like sense of anticipation. All that stuff I thought was really fun and kind of just like discovered afterwards. Like, oh, in a filmic way, this kind of has a sort of natural tension to it that maybe is unexpected and that stuff is also so like easy to do like it's like easy to play with the rhythm of it it's like the super flexible format so i don't know that part was the easiest most fun The imaginary universe Sean creates for this chat room is one vaguely reminiscent of the futurescapes of series such as Black Mirror or the movie The Congress by Ari Folman. To create this world, Sean found himself drawing upon a wide variety of online visual references. This is going to be sort of a huge spoiler, but it's like everything is such a direct re- reference to something that's either period appropriate or has some kind of like intertextual uh, internet reference. Like there's this website called Secret Door that just is like a door and you go through it and it drops you into a random like Google, Google street view location. So it's like this teleportation door. That's just a website. And I just thought like, that's so cool. What if that were like a cinematic element? And then the whole ballroom dance is sort of from final fantasy (laughs) eight mixed with, uh, I saw this movie called life 2.0. That's this documentary about second life. And there's this really amazing scene it's like this couple that meets and the woman is married, but she meets this guy in second life. And so she gets a divorce and then the two of them meet up for the first time and they start dating and you sort of see them in second life together. And then you see them in real life and they start dating and then they move in together. And then there's this scene where they're, they're like just having to weed their garden and they're both getting like super pissed at each other, just like nipping at each other while they're weeding the garden. And then it cuts to her and she's crying and she's talking about how he moved back to Canada, like he moved out. And then it cuts to them like ballroom dancing together in Second Life. And it's like there was a really strong sense of like, oh, this is way more appealing than, you know, real life is weeding the garden. Second Life is all ballroom dancing. And like <laughs> neither of these people can even probably ball. Like you wouldn't even want to be there in real life. But the idea of ballroom dancing, like just watching that clip, I was like, man, this is pure romance. When you get together in real life, it's all shit. It's all, yeah, it's all, it's all fighting and, and having to do the dishes. Among the new filmmakers to join the late night work club for their second outing was Jeanette Bonds, an LA based Annie Award nominated animator who, in recent years, co founded the Glass Animation Festival, an event focusing on new independent work that takes place in Berkeley, California, and for which she also serves as artistic director. Among the festival's team is Sean Buckaloo, who himself serves as lead programmer and had known Jeanette for some time prior. 
Jeanette and I went to school together, so we were at CalArts at the same time. And yeah, so she does the Glass Animation Festival, which is pretty cool. I'm a I'm a big fan of that, and I help with some of the I help with all the fun shit. Basically, I do like curating. She'd been going through CalArts a little bit, making more like formal experimental pieces, and then I actually went on a trip with her to Annecy. And to me, it was my first experience at a at a big festival, and like we saw movies like A Willy for the mm-hmm. first time. That that uh, Mark and Emma stop motion film. And mm-hmm. I think just these kind of huge films and it kind of blew us all away. I think after that, there was a kind of a group of people that were all like, Oh, okay. Like I want to make serious short films. And so for Jeanette, it was kind of maybe more of a pivot away from what she'd been doing up until that point to making like, okay, I'm going to make like 2d animated festival type work. But then, yeah, right. She also does glass and is totally immersed kind of in this whole big international animation community. Jeanette's path to animation proved fairly atypical, ultimately leading to the experimental animation program at CalArts, where she received a BFA and MFA. I didn't really plan on becoming an animator. I think a lot of some people have wanted to be an animator since they were kids, and it's something I kind of fell into. I was studying uh, philosophy and history for a long time, and then one day uh, I, I had this idea. I don't know why. Well, I know why. Uh, that I felt it was a disservice to the disciplines of history and philosophy to actually receive and obtain a degree in it. So I guess you could say I was a bit of an idealist in that way at the time. And so I decided that I wanted to become an architect. And I didn't have any drawing background at all. And I'd been a musician my entire life, so function very drill-based when it comes to learning things. So I just thought, okay, the most efficient way to probably learn how to become a, a good draw illustrator to become an architect would probably be to be, take some animation courses. So I took some animation courses, and the people at the school said that I was strange as an artist and everyone else was very skilled and I wasn't very skilled. And this was a late in life. I think I was 20, well, not late in life. I think I was already in my mid to late twenties at that point. And I hadn't, I had never touched animation or I hadn't drawn really. And but they suggested that I apply to CalArts and I did. And then that's just how I wound up getting into things there. And I did installations most of my, most of my time at CalArts and then at some point I just started, I I wanted to graduate an animation program having made unanimated film and I had never done it before so my first one was Trust and Estates. In 2013 Jeanette's CalArts film Trust and Estates gained some momentum both online and on the festival circuit. With a voice cast including Sean, the film presents a frequently caustic and sexually explicit conversation between four besuited male lawyers in a restaurant based on an exchange Jeanette had witnessed in real life. So we had this client come in, right? She had this special needs trust set up for her retarded nephew. Yeah, he's all f***ing waddling around and shit. And she wanted to change the trust so that her boyfriend could come live in her home for the rest of his life. Yeah, but she was all dying of some shit like face cancer. Right, so I had to go out of town and I asked this an idiot to handle the fine print, but he writes the fucking retard out of the amendment. So yeah, and before she notices any of this shit, she does us a huge favor and fucking dies while he's like flipping around. So Monday morning, her family comes in and they're saying, "What the fuck happened to the retard?" And I had to think on my toes. His little delicious twinkle toes. <laughs> so I lied and said that if the nephew gets anything from the will, it'd jeopardize his state benefits. Yeah, and at that point, we couldn't just go back and fix this shit or it'd look unprofessional. Unprofessional. Yeah, could we say anything different? She's fucking dead. So anyway, that's how we wrote the retard out of the will. Speaking of retards, didn't your kid just have a birthday? <laughs> I mean, of course it was different when it happened in real life. There were about 12 men at this restaurant. And so I was just kind of writing everything down rigorously while they were talking. And they were sitting there for about an hour doing that, and I had to condense it down into a few minutes. Sean was one of the voice actors in it, uh, in that one. And it was an interesting experience for me because I had never directed voice actors before. I'd never, did, I'd never made a film before. I saw, well, I made experimental, more traditionally experimental things. And we were at, I had initially put together a cast of actors, proper actors. And then my neighbor, who was this wild man, I remember we would always talk, we'd always run into him in the driveway or just in the grounds of our apartment. And whenever we went into him, we would get stuck talking to him about 20 minutes. 
and he was so wild because he would just do voices all the time. And anytime he would do a voice, he would get into character and it would be spot on. So he could always just jump back and forth between his things. So I remember one day just thinking he'd be perfect. But then I had these other hired actors and it just didn't feel natural enough for me. So that's when I decided to keep one of the hired actors, keep the neighbor, and then hired on to my really good, you know, Sean and my friend Jess, because I wanted it to feel a bit more competitive. And it was interesting because my neighbor, his name was Dan. He, when they were in the recording studio, he really took on the role. He would bully Sean and Jess and, this other, and the other guy really hard at the point where Sean and Jess and, and Juan were just standing there. They had no idea what how to respond. And at some point I said, okay, you guys have to, you guys got to keep up. And they started to, and the other guy kind of started to back off a little bit just to let them give him a chance. But that didn't work because it was too obvious that he was giving him a chance as he could very be really aggressive. And at some point, for like the third, by the third hour, I, they all, all, everyone really just let loose and um, they started <laughs> diving in on each other and saying some of the most outrageous things I mean, all within character and it was all there at some point you should hear the outtakes because some of them make no sense <laughs> and they would turn into these like 20 minute conversations that I would never use but it was just good for them to explore it <laughs> and then finally at the end I kind of said okay now let's bring it back to script and just improvise a little bit more maybe a little closer to the script and uh, they did and that's basically what the final result was. Although not involved directly with the first anthology, Ghost Stories, seeing how Sean's contribution progressed as well as his enthusiasm for the collective on the whole made the idea of getting involved in the second anthology appealing. For Strangers, Jeanette created the film Departures, which similarly draws on an element of observation in capturing the potential awkwardness of an airplane journey. When they said that they were going to start doing the second one, I thought, okay, I'm just going to ask. So I asked Charles, and he said, sure. I didn't, I didn't expect it, yes. I genuinely expected it a no. As far as your interpretation, had the idea for your film existed at all before, or did it come pretty much when you were given the word strangers? It's a little bit of a combination. I had been kind of interested in airports before that, but I hadn't come up with a story or anything. The second they came up with, they, they said strangers, that's when it really, it really came together and I just started making something. Well, because originally I wanted it to be the film that I had in my mind before the strangers word came in. I was thinking of something that just took place at the airport itself. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to do just people wandering around an airport. But then for some reason, just when strangers came in, I decided that I wanted it to all take place on the plane itself. As it's a really strange, alienating space where you're around people, but you don't talk to anybody at all. And you're just kind of doing everything you can to avoid people. Or some people do, and there's all these signals that people give you that, uh, you know, when you when you first sit down, and if someone's not going to talk to you, they'll immediately put their headphones on or just give you all these signals as to what the, what the remainder of the flight's going to be like. Yeah. And so it's all these just like minor conversations that you, or just signals that you give as to, it's just it's such a strange thing to be in a space with people that for as long, up to 18 hours or however many hours, 12 hours, and never really talk to them other than maybe climbing over them to go to the bathroom. Another new contributor specifically approached to get involved with Strangers was Luis Filia, an animator, illustrator, and VJ who works under the moniker Loop Blaster. Her film Freedom explores themes of equality, human rights, and migrant solidarity in her home city of Calais in France. My film is about the migrant situation in in Calais, Mm -hmm. which is my hometown. So two years ago when they asked me to, to join the club and and they told me the theme, it was actually perfect. It, it was like, um, I wanted to do a film about the situation there. And it was just the, the biggest chance to speak up for what was going on there. So like, I was uh, surprised. But at the same time, the theme is also curious about like the the digital age and how like we're all strangers somehow in, in this club. So like, it's a lot of very interesting not random, but it's... Uh, and I think a few, few of the films are talking about this as well. Hmm. Like Caleb. Quite a few animators I saw credited for it. As far as like how it kind of divided up, as a director, did you manage animators or were you responsible for most of the animation yourself? I did most of the animation myself. I had a little bit of help. 
um, because sometimes it was such a long process, two years, and doing this on the side of jobs and, and life and things um, were quite intense for me for, for the last two years because uh, of many different projects and having support from animators, friends or people from that get in touch on the internet, it was it was really motivating just to know that people are there supporting and even if they do a tiny bit, so you, you, you know that they are, like people are, are around you somehow and, and supporting. It, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's always nice to to have uh, even a few seconds of someone else's animation. It's, it's always, any help is a, a big help. Mm-hmm. But I cannot say that as a director, I feel it's still a pa- very particular way of making short films. It's, uh, you are always cut, you have long period without working on it. It was quite hard for me to, to do the short film, but... Um, it's not like you are like you, you have the money to to pay people and to have a, th- a team and to like uh, to have the the proper organization and the, it's working on support and on on friendship and on like yeah at the end of the day, the budgeting of each film's production lay on the individual director's shoulders, and in keeping with the landscape of independent animation as a whole, some would make their films entirely on their own or with a crew of friends and whatever free time presented itself while others would be able to harness additional support or outside funding. In the case of Freedom, Loop was able to get some funding help from the organization Art Brutal. I had a small grant. It was about a thousand euro. So it's not really like... A, it's, it's a little of support, but for a whole film, it's, it's very, very little. But it was like also important. It's a help on the short film. It's a, a grant that is given for first short film. And it was also a way for me to step into the animation community in France, to put your foot in the door and to be like, this is independent animation, but because these people have an animation in a studio in Paris, and one of the guys, Bastien Dubois, who he made a film a few years ago called Madagascar, a travel sketchbook, who I think was uh, on the run for, for the Oscars at the time. So it was like part of this support and it really helped me. At that point, I was living in London and with very expensive rent and it paid like a month of my rent, but it's still like, it's many, many, many little things that allowed me to, to make that film on my own and, and to also have the total freedom on the way of making it as well. To talk a bit about the situation in Calais as well, with the camps and and with the situation there changes very fast and I did it quite chronologically somehow but I didn't have like uh, I mean I added and added uh, with time I didn't have a, a plan for the whole thing I didn't come with one idea from the beginning I thought I'm gonna meet the people and see with time what's gonna come what's gonna happen to make something that still makes sense at the end, at the end. So it, it was more like, yeah, I let a lot of the life to, to flow and to see who I'm going to meet, what's going to happen. And just, we didn't know when we started, if it's, if it would take like a year or a few months or two years, we didn't, we had, sometimes we set up deadlines that we, we have pushed, but I, I thought like this theme is going to be what it's going to be. And, and and we will see. So like uh, the help from Arbutal at some point, like any any help really helped, and everyone that was involved, even uh, friends that advised me. It was a really special way of making a film. Really for me, it changed a lot of things in my personal life as well. Meeting the refugees in my hometown, and it was a, a whole journey working on that film. By mid-2016, the team had a sense of who was likely to finish their project. As Charles himself relates, this was what determined his contribution would be the interlinking animations, rather than a new short film in its own right. From the filmmakers that made it this far, it was another new addition to the collective, Canadian animator Nicolas Maynard, who was first to cross the finish line. Prior to getting involved, Nicholas had moved to the UK from Montreal to study at the Royal College of Art, where he made the popular student film Somewhere and Loop Ring Chop Drink, roughly around the time the first late-night work club anthology Ghost Stories was put out into the world. I was at the RCA when they did the Ghost Stories, 
and uh, yeah, I just thought it was really cool to see all these people that were not in education anymore, and they kept making short films because a lot of folks go out there after their studies and just do commercial work and kind of abandon the idea of doing um, their own short films. Uh, and I thought it was cool to see that all these people like joined together to deliver like a series of of work. And I remember just tweeting when it came out, when I'm a grown-up, I really want to be part of the Late Night Work Club. And then two years later, I, they invited me to, uh, to be part of it. Wednesday with Goddard stands out as the more directly comedic short of the collection, juxtaposing a simultaneously modern and retro design style for the character animation against exquisitely rendered pencil-drawn backgrounds and elements by Nicholas's partner Manchin Lowe. The story itself is of a man pondering the existence, or strictly speaking, the whereabouts of God, initially met with derision, until a young lady offers to show him the way. The film debuted on its own prior to the online release of Strangers as part of a Nexus special presentation at Encounters in Bristol, where it also played in competition. This film just came about because I had this idea for an ending, where um, I just started thinking about how you, you could reach the climax of a story and then uh, get to the ending really quickly. And I just had this idea of, of a sort of very scary god that uh, just scares the heck out of a guy, and then he runs back home and, and cries in his room. And I thought, oh, that could make an interesting, like, three-square comic. Or, you know, it's just like a, a one very simple sort of joke. But then I started sort of uh, opening Google Docs and starting to write a beginning for it. And in the end, I quickly... Uh, I quickly started giving it a sort of children's book vibe because I guess that's sort of the way that I find it the, the most easy to write. It's just as if the script, you turn a page each time. So uh, the film is very much structured like a children's book, but then ends quite suddenly. So uh, I was just uh, playing with structure at the beginning before going into any kind of meaning. And then anything about what God meant to me and these kind of things sort of came out later. And I had to reflect on these things a little bit later. It kind of came in a much more organic way rather than a, a setting to deliver one specific kind of message. So in the end, uh, I, I tried to craft the film in a very uh, open way so people can interpret it a little bit the, uh, the way they want to. But at the same time, for me, it was just to sort of try and play with the absurdity of uh, how as humans we're just always looking for something but never really finding it. Or if we find it, it's like often quite disappointing or the, the truth is not as enchanting uh, as the idea of it. I've wasted my afternoon. Every project I undertake fails miserably. Do not despair. I know where God lives, up in the clouds. You can find him at the top of the mountain. Show me. I quite like using dark comedy and sort of deadpan humor in general in my work, so I was trying to push that a little bit forward with that story. I I was quite afraid to write another narrative short after my RCA years because... When I was at the RCA, I, it was my first time sort of trying to write stories, and I found it really difficult. And uh, when I was doing my BA in graphic design in Montreal, we had like a audiovisual course, which was like a course in which we were told uh, how to make films and things. But basically, the only thing the teacher would tell us is that we didn't have anything to say and that we were all shit at making films. <laughs> it, marked, like, it really left a, a strong impression on me, so every time I, I'm setting up to write something, I'm incredibly self-conscious about it. So writing the story was hard, even though it was like a very short three-minute film. But uh, I tried this time to keep it much simpler than some of the previous things I've done in the past or try and be a bit more to the point. But again, it's just like I, I sort of see it again as another narrative experiment moving forward. Like it was my first time using voice acting. I really wanted the characters to talk this time around. So yeah, in many ways, it's kind of a technical experiment more than a uh, philosophical one for myself. Did the storybook element, did that kind of determine the aspect ratio? Yeah, so the aspect ratio was just, uh, it's just because I was really fed up of making films that are 16 by 9. Because, uh-huh. you know, when you do commercials or when you make short films, it's always 16 by 9. And then when you do illustrations or prints and stuff, then you have the freedom to do whatever format you want. So I just wanted to try something a bit more square this time around. Mm. That's just that, for that reason. I was just uh, trying to seek for something a little bit new. Even though it's not new at all, it's like old school. But uh, for me, it's new because I've never done it before. Mm. Did you find it was quite refreshing then in terms of approaching composition and laying out shots and stuff? Absolutely. After the project, I had to do a, a, like a series of commercials for Facebook. 
that had to be square, like mm. perfectly square for like the, you know, now they use square format on Instagram and Facebook to share videos. Uh, and I realized how actually 4x3 is actually quite wide. So I had a really good time using that format. I think uh, it also, it's also a little bit more, more like a book format uh, at the end of the day. So it, it was quite fun to, uh, to use. It gives you like much more space, like at the top and at the bottom. So you can do uh, certain things that you wouldn't be able to do uh, with 16x9, which feels like everything has to be like a landscape. Among the reasons that Wednesday with Goddard would be the first film of the anthology to be finished was through Nicholas's harnessing of an assortment of resources to ensure the film was made, having recently become a part of the prominent UK studio Nexus Productions. It was actually also made for Channel 4, uh, Random Acts, the film. And I had my producer, Claire Cook, who came to me and, and she told me, oh, uh, Ch Channel 4 is interested in commissioning a film from you. Are you interested to do it? And I was like, well, I've got this script that I wrote for the Late Night Work Club. But I can't do two short films. I can just do one. Like it would be, I would kill myself if I had to do two short films in a year. So uh, I sort of went to Charles and asked him uh, if it was cool if the film was both for the Late Night Work Club and Channel Four. And then uh, you know he was quite chilled about it, so it was all good. So I set up. I sort of set up to do the film, and uh, and I didn't really start until uh, January of 2016, where I started making some visual experimentations. And I was uh, playing around with some of my uh, girlfriend's drawings uh, and she was making these very realistic sort of mountains and things. And then I would just ask her, can you draw some mountains on a piece of paper? And then I would just come and with like a, a pen, an ink pen, I would just come and like draw a very simple character right next to it. Uh, and suddenly there was something happening between the contrast of both. So we, we took a big part of the winter to sort of figure out the aesthetic of the film, how we can mix my simple characters with her intricate uh, pencil drawings, how that could work out. And then finally, I think it's about around May, we kind of started, no, maybe around April, we started like working on it seriously and I was storyboarding and everything and uh, doing an animatic. And then I was set up, you know, to just continue and finish up the whole thing. But this big job for Facebook came um, and... Uh, it's something I couldn't really say no to. So, uh, you know, I sat down with Nexus and uh, told them, you know, my priority is really finishing the short film. It's really what's important to me. But at the same time, I really want to do Facebook. Is there a way to make it work together? So in the end, uh, Nexus sort of came in and uh, gave me a bit of help on the short film by uh, providing some animators while doing the Facebook job uh, so I could uh, deliver the film in time. So... Yeah, I had incredible help from them because they provided the animators but also the studio space for them to work at. And uh, with, with that help, actually, I managed to make it uh, in time. So the animation was done much faster than I thought it would uh, if I had done the whole thing on my own. But without their help, like, I would just have done the Facebook job and then the film would have never been done. So, yeah, I was incredibly lucky to make both work at the same time, actually. So the pencil drawings that are in the film, are those the same drawings? Uh, yeah, she was doing the, the drawings. But the way it worked was a little bit like a, a back and forth. So I would, I would do a layout where I would say, okay, well, I need this type of flower here, or I need, I need this type of object there. Or I need like a, a set of wooden blocks that look like a church here, and the texture of the wood should be like this, and the light is over here. And then she, uh, she would go about and, uh, and sort of render this old drawing on paper. And then I would scan it in, put it in the computer, put some color, and add the characters in and then it would be ready for animation. So yeah, that's kind of how it works. So uh, once we had like the fully designed shot, then it was ready to animate. So she did an incredible amount of pencil drawings and sometimes we had to go, uh, you know, sometimes she would have to do it twice because the first time wouldn't be completely right. So there was a lot of work on that. And there's a point in the film where there's the flower being animated. It's like God, God loses his mask and uh, there's this flower popping out of space. And um, it took three weeks to render all the frames oh, um, wow. on paper. I think there's 21 drawings. And Iris, Iris Abols, uh, one of my friends, did all the layout and all the outline for that animation. And then we printed them. And then uh, Manchen did all the pencil drawing, uh, just like really brought it to life uh, by adding all the shading and the lighting. It was quite incredible to see, actually, like uh, someone who's so skilled at uh, pencil drawing and, and see how she operates and how she makes it happen. But she was, she was not just doing the pencil drawing, she was also like uh, the main collaborator on the film because I would often be very insecure about uh, the animatic or the work itself and I would go to her and ask her, 
her opinion because she's a really good uh, critique, so she would give me a lot of feedback. The design style of Nicholas's animation is distinct from that of his previous films in its use of stark lines, rigid geometry, and playful approaches to human anatomy. While minimal in some regards, there's an ingenuity to the approach that at times evokes the work of George Dunning and graphic artists such as Seymour Chavast. Because of the time scale of the film, I had to be very economical about the character design. And I remember that in my previous films, something that took a lot of time to, to draw was the hands. And so I decided that for this film, my characters would not have any hands unless they need it. So the hands would only pop out when needed. Uh, and that way we could skip like a lot of... Uh, drawings, so a lot of time drawing hands. So that's why I designed these characters that are, are mostly just geometric and work without any hands, and then when they need them, they just, just like, whoop, a little bit like a Swiss Army knife. They just sort of pop out. And also they're just like sort of, I guess, a, a natural progression from some of the earlier uh, design work that I've been doing with characters in the past and some commercial jobs and stuff. But I wanted them to be, um, I think my characters, uh, they always have this sort of expressionless face, so these ones, they carry on doing that but they need, needed to be more refined than some of my previous characters to fit with the pencil drawings uh, as well, so they're quite neat. They contrast well with the pencil drawings. Wednesday with Goddard would quickly go on to win jury awards at SXSW in Austin and Summit de Cinéma d'Animation in Montreal, where it also won the public award. Hi, stranger. It's been a while. I've missed you. It's okay. You can look at my butt. <laughs> I feel like I can really be vulnerable around you. To many podcast listeners, Kirsten Lepore probably needs no introduction. Her student shorts, in particular Bottle, were massively successful, as was her subsequent independently produced work Move Mountain, a prominent case study in the independent animation book. She's also achieved considerable mainstream success directing for series such as Yo Gabba Gabba and Adventure Time, and presently is involved in an as-yet-unannounced feature film. While her star was already well on the rise, the call of Late Night Work Club, indeed the overall spirit of the project, was something she felt drawn to. They actually had asked me, I think for the first edition of Late Night Work Club, if I wanted to be involved initially, but at that time, I think I was still in school and I was in the middle of a million projects, so it just like wasn't going to work out time-wise, so... You know, and yet I didn't even know what it was going to be at that point because, you know, it was just like initial stages of the first one. And then when the first one, Ghost Stories, came out, I saw it and I was like kicking myself for not making time for that because it was just so amazing. Uh, and, and yeah, the films were so incredible and they made such a splash um, that then when they hit me up for the second edition, I was like over the moon that they asked me again. So I, I was like, I got to make this happen. I got to do it. It was definitely a struggle to get a film out on time, even though, you know, I think we had probably two and a half years <laughs> since they first told us uh, that the second edition was starting. But, you know, work happens, Adventure Time happened in the middle of that. Um, and it just becomes, yeah, difficult to get to get personal work done. But I was still like, I, I, I was like, I got to make this happen somehow. Like on the one hand, because, you know, I really wanted to make a new film and make personal work, but also, I was like, I don't want to disappoint these cool people at, that are part of this club. Um, and I like, I want to be, I really want to be a part of this thing. I really want to make this happen. So um, I'm glad I finally got to. Um, and yeah, all their work is just like so incredible. Like it feels good to be in an anthology and in the company of such, such talented indie animators. Late Night Work Club fans were treated to an early teaser trailer roughly a year before the finished version of Strangers came out. Though compared to the final product, in hindsight, there are some disparities. Initially, other filmmakers from Ghost Story, such as Scott Benson, Eamon O'Neill, and Connor Finnegan, were announced to be returning, though circumstances ultimately ruled their involvement out. The early trailer also offered a glimpse of what would be Kirsten's contribution, although the film we see in Strangers is a different piece entirely, her own work and life circumstances ultimately determining that her contribution would have to be rethought from scratch, despite production having already begun on the initial idea. I haven't completely kiboshed it to the point of getting rid of the sets I built, because I. the sad thing is I, I spent months working on that first film, and it was going to be... Um, it was going to be like a five and a half minute, you know, like a much bigger production. I had the whole thing totally storyboarded, ready to go. I did, I think I fabricated all the puppets and there were like 
eight puppets or something. Some of them even silicone puppets that needed to be fabricated. And I also built, I think, two different like full sets, a bunch of props. I was and I shot, I think, like a scene of it. So I did I actually two different scenes, I think I shot. So I put a lot of work into this film, this first film. Um, and then Adventure Time happened kind of right in the middle of working on that. So it just completely derailed me for a year. And then when I came back after Adventure Time, I think the my initial motivation for making that first film I'd sort of lost it because it was it was really motivated motivated by like what I was going through at that very moment, and I felt like all of those emotions and feelings had kind of passed, um, and so it didn't really feel totally relevant to me anymore. So I was, you know, I'm definitely not the type of person that you know likes to give up on things halfway through, especially if you've made all the assets and you've done most of the work. But I don't know, I just couldn't bring myself to to do it and and even get it done. I think in the time frame I had allotted. So I just went, you know, totally in another direction with something that was, it felt much more on the tip of my brain in that moment, you know, it was sort of like, I I had just like finished going to therapy for a year and I was all about like mindfulness and, and I was doing some meditation and I was thinking about all these things, but I was also just like exhausted at the prospect of, of making another film. So out of all of those feelings arose the, my, my film High Stranger that is in there now. Yeah, and there's just, like, a lot of things going on in there. At least things that, like, inspired me to make it, at least. The closing film of the anthology is Kirsten's High Stranger, a simple yet immediately engaging concept where a serene, nude, pale man-like creature offers platitudes and reassurances to the viewer. The character is voiced by Garrett Michael Davis, a fellow independent animator who Kirsten had previously worked with ten years prior for the musical short film Story from North America, another film explored in the independent animation book. Son, what's all this screaming for? You're gonna wake the neighbors next door. Daddy, I think there's a spider on my floor. Is it? And will you squish it? the night to come into your room and destroy life. Is that what they teach you in Sunday school? Their second collaboration would prove to be another viral hit, although it's worth noting that the origins of High Stranger's concept came from Kirsten's stint on Adventure Time. So I was trying to come up with this with a new idea because I knew I had to scrap that old longer idea because it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and I was going through old sketchbooks, which I do sometimes when I'm like, cause I, I write, I jot a lot of ideas down in sketchbooks, but then, you know, they usually just get lost in a sketchbook. So I just like went back through some old ones to see if I had jotted anything down that was exciting that I wanted to come back to. And I went through one of my most recent sketchbooks, like from beginning to end, just kind of flipped through and I found this post-it note, uh, that actually Kent Osborne, who's the, uh, who's the head of story at on Adventure Time. It's a post-it note that he had had on his desk during like our kind of one and only writers meeting at the very beginning of when I came in for the project where I was sort of just pitching them ideas and they were kind of like vetoing or okaying ideas. So I, I'd seen this post-it note on his desk that was like this guy, it's pretty much the same frame. It's like this guy with a weird butt kind of like looking over his shoulder at the camera and something about this character, like it was really simple. But it, like this is post-it note sitting there. I just like couldn't take my eyes off of it. And I remember asking Kent about it. And he he just, he like doodles all the time. So like for him, that's no big deal. So he was like, oh yeah, you want it? And he just like gave me the post-it. And I put it in my sketchbook uh, and totally forgot about it until I flipped through looking for ideas. And immediately when I, when I got to it, I just like suddenly, like this character just came to life for me and I had all these ideas. Uh, and so I'd emailed Kent to be like, hey, I have this whole idea for a film based on this post-it note you gave me. Like, is it cool if I, I kind of adapt this character? Uh, and he was just like, absolutely, like, totally cool with it, which was awesome. So I kind of like changed the design a little bit and, you know, kind of messed with it and sort of created a personality for this simple doodle that was just on a post-it note. And that's kind of like where the design came from, basically. Originally, Kirsten had hoped to create a fully articulated silicon puppet for the repurposed main character of High Stranger, although time and budget determined that economic approaches were required wherever possible. Instead, Kirsten used polymer clay over a wire armature, a material chosen for a distinctly translucent shininess that distinguishes it from plasticine. 
For an elaborate Vista cutaway shot, Kirsten went with a similarly lo-fi route using paper cups, crumpled up paper, and fluorescent paint lit with a black light to rather striking overall effect. The film proves on the whole just how important strength of idea can be in the face of a low budget, something that many of the best independent animators out there are able to embrace. Indeed, in Kirsten's opinion, independent filmmaking and personal projects are vital to artists. I think it's like probably the most important thing for most artists to, you know, animation artists, whoever, to keep that flame alive, basically, making your own work in some way or another. I mean, sometimes it won't happen for years. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to get something out. But I think it's what keeps you sharp as an artist and what keeps you experimenting. And I feel like you always have to express yourself in some way. So doing those things, I think, is really important. And it's also those personal things that I think attract work even like attract client attention and attract attention generally to one as an artist is like that personal work that you make because that's the only thing that's really going to have your true stamp on it you know no one else is kind of telling you how to make it it's really you and it's really personal I think it's what kind of defines people someone as an artist. Kirsten would go on to release High Stranger Online as a standalone short back in March of this year and it immediately went viral in a massive way, since amassing millions of views across Vimeo, YouTube, and inevitably the assortment of Facebook pages that would appropriate its bizarre appeal for themselves. Certainly beyond the predictable layer of befuddled viewers, it's clear that the film has a resonance to it that is spoken to audiences, going to show that the films can have just as much of a life of their own outside of the anthology as within it. Although as Kirsten and others enthuse, being part of a bigger entity proved to be one of the biggest motivators in getting their film done. I definitely function well when I have when I have deadlines, and that's that's why I was always making films in school. You know, and why most of my films ended up making I ended up making were only uh, products of kind of like college and grad school. It's just like I I do really well when someone above me is telling me like do this by a certain time <laughs> because I'm I'm such like a overachieving deadline hitter like I, I'm that kind of person where I'm like you gave me a deadline I gotta hit it that's like sort of what I live for in a way I don't know it's really weird like I love I, I just I want to be like that bitty two shoes that like delivers by the time frame <laughs> so yeah if someone just keeps giving me deadlines I feel like I'll just keep making things but if I'm left to my own devices I'll just kind of probably be lazy and float away and go watch movies and things <laughs> with this it just became really exciting to be a part of something and kind of want to finish things at the same time as other people and be in the process with other people. I think the most exciting thing is actually creating around others. I will do about my own, but it doesn't make it as fun when you can actually get feedback from people and talking to other people about your project. And it's really beneficial. To, I think the development stage is the most exciting part because once it's all, all figured out, it's, I don't, there's not that, at some point it just kind of becomes automatic where you just have to finish it but the most exciting part is that initial part where people are coming up with ideas and sharing ideas you can see what everyone's doing it is a drive it is definitely it it pushes motivates you and pushes you forward definitely for me it was uh, my first short film so i haven't had directed properly a short film before i didn't do even a, a graduation movie so um, yeah, the support from the from from the collective and and to know it's gonna be screened worldwide and also in real life places to have uh, real real screenings and uh, I, I felt a lot of support even though you you do this in, independently so it's uh, I don't know it's it's really particular way of making a short film but for me it, it was the best way especially with my theme about Calais. It felt very natural for me to to get into this and a lot of support from everyone and it was really motivating. Although the films are perfectly suited to online viewing, live screenings have also proved quite valuable to the filmmakers. We had the screening in Sydney um, the night before last and yeah, that was pretty incredible. I mean, there's so much energy and sort of excitement from this, uh, this theatre full of people that came out on a Tuesday night to see it. That was an extremely positive sort of like in-person response that I got to experience. So, um, yeah, that was nice. How about online? <laughs> well, I've had it where people are messaging me. I've gotten a couple of messages from people who I don't necessarily know super well, um, like acquaintances maybe uh, in real life or actually just online friends, where people are telling me about online relationships that they had like during their teenage years. Um 
which has been really interesting where it's people who are kind of like, you know, I was, you know, friends with, or I was kind of romantically involved with someone I'd never met when I was like 14. And, uh, uh, for me, that kind of thing is fun. Like, I feel like with animation, I, I really like it when like a, a film can lead to a conversation that's more about like being human than it is about like animation craft or like, you know, what's your, what program do you use? Like the, the idea that people are reaching out and kind of saying like, I don't know that this like connected in an emotional way is, is, I don't know. That kind of stuff is, is super exciting. Just, and people have been really, I mean, people have been really nice just in general. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the comments have been great. Um, the anticipation that everyone's had has just been great. Um, people have been people were sending images of themselves watching Strangers. Yeah, um, that was when awesome. it released at midnight, you know, like who wants to watch forty minutes of animation at midnight, you know? But people did, you know, and that's amazing, you know. Uh, and like, I feel like the first time we when we released Ghost Stories, uh, there was a lot of uh, confusion in the press and festivals and stuff. Like, uh, we got a lot of, we would say like, Hey, you want to, you know, write about this? Maybe it's, you know, you're an animation site, maybe check this out. And people would just be like, what is this? Who are you? I don't know. But this time we've gotten a lot more outreach and it's been cool. I'm really digging it. Certainly despite being online in full, it's a project that much like its predecessor has life in it for a good long while, with more international screenings to come, and we'll run through some of those at the end of the podcast. As far as what's next for Late Night Work Club, there's clearly a potential for it to build on itself as the landscape of independent animation and online collaboration continues to evolve. One thing that I'm actually really proud of for the second one, and I would credit Charles with a lot of this, it followed the exact same format and coincidentally is almost the exact same length as the first one. So now I'm like, I'm like really stoked because when you see the two next to each other, somehow they managed to be totally consistent in the way that, you know, just everything about the way they're assembled. Like now there's a through line between the two where it's like, they're going to have these little interstitial bump things. It's going to have this intro, you know, it's going to sort of look like this, even just like the text on Vimeo. But, I think it's just a weird thing where I still sort of think like, what is this, you know? And now it's also a thing where it's like, we have a feature length worth of material. That's all late night work club, all produced basically for free. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, there's, there is sort of a question in my mind of like, you know, what's next or like, what does this mean? Or like, what is the, you know, what will be the like 10 year lifespan of something like this? I don't know. There isn't quite anything else like it which is cool and exciting, but it's also maybe like a little bit like scary just because it's like, I imagine that people who take more conventional routes with, I'm going to do a short that goes to Sundance and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can look to people who have gone down that route and had like TV shows or have gotten features and you can kind of go like, this is the exact kind of career trajectory that I aspire to where as I get older, I can kind of continue to scale up the operation. I think with Late Night Work Club, since it's veering off into kind of a weirder direction, it's like, what is that? How do you imagine this idea scaling relative to independent animation? It's like, what's the end game? To keep up to speed with Late Night Work Club, watch the films and see where it goes from here, check out latenightworkclub.com. You can follow them on Twitter at L8NightWorkClub. You might also want to look into the work of the individual artists themselves at Charles Hertner. .tumblr.com, seanbuckaloo.com, alexgrig.com, jeanettebonds.com, loopblaster.tumblr.com, nicholasmaynard.com, and kirstenlepore.com. Also, Caleb Wood's work can be seen at vimeo.com slash calebwood. The music in this episode is mostly from Strangers, and you can check out the composing team Skillbard at skillbard.com, and composer David Camp is at studiocamp.com. That's camp with a K. As mentioned before, there are several Strangers-related screenings coming up. Wednesday with Goddard will play at Pictoplasma in Berlin, which runs from May 10th. Love Streams and High Stranger are screening at AnimaFest Zagreb, which kicks off June 5th. And the following week, again, Wednesday with Goddard is screening in competition at the Annecy Festival. Then in July, there'll be a full screening of Strangers held by Cardiff Animation Nights, with some of the late-night work club members in attendance all being well. The hopeful date for that is July 22nd, but be sure to keep your eyes on CardiffAnimation.com for updates and venue info closer to the time. 
Before I wrap up episode two of Independent Animation, there are a couple of plugs to run through. On a semi-related note, Cardiff Animation Nights are again doing the Animation Strand for this year's Cardiff Independent Film Festival, and Squiggly will be there. Steve and I will be doing the Squiggly Quiz at 8.30pm, May 6th. You can also catch Squiggly Features Writer and Intimate Animation co-host Laura Beth Cowley's film Boris Norris at the Cloth Cat Family Screening. There's two morning screenings at 10.15 and 11.45am. Not only that, my own indie film Clemen Throw is playing in the Competition 2 screening at 5.15pm. The festival events all take place at Chapter Art Centre in Cardiff, and you can pick up tickets at chapter.org. Before then, Clemen Throw will also be screened in Cagliari as part of a special Best of 2016 screening prior to this year's edition of the Skepto International Film Festival. That'll be April 29th, and more info on that at skepto.net. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget the book Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films is out now from Taylor & Francis and CRC Press. And thanks again to the brilliant contributors to this episode, and I look forward to bringing you episode 3 very soon, as well as more from Intimate Animation, Animation Composed, and the long-running Squiggly Animation podcast. You can find them all, as well as our usual cavalcade of industry coverage and features, over at squiggly.com. I've been Ben Mitchell, at Ben L. Mitchell, on Twitter and Instagram, and until I can think of a better sign-off, happy independent animating. <laughs>